0: Well, good morning, church, again. I was listening to an interview this, this past week, and um, it was an interview of uh, an historian. And, and this historian, he's an American historian, and, and in this interview, they were talking about um, kind of the times that we are in, but more so kind of how we got here in a way as they discussed how we began as a nation, how our nation was founded and the founding fathers. And, and uh, it was an interesting interview and, and enjoyed listening to it. But through the course of it, this historian said something that stuck out to me. And it seemed to be a, group, a good encapsulation of kind of how we've arrived at the place that we're at right now in terms of our culture, not just our culture here, not just America, But just our world, the world we live in, we would say, and I think we would all agree, seems to be uh, getting relatively worse than what it maybe once was. There have been dark times for sure, the world over, since the cross. But this historian, he said these words. He said that good times, or good men make good times, but good times make soft men. And then soft men make bad times. And he says, we're living in bad times. And that and as he said that, I just kind of thought that 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 just that one, it flows well, but it gives a good picture as to what has happened. Now when we think about good men, I put it in context of the church. As we think about discipleship and following after Jesus and what these men did, the 12 men that Jesus had as disciples amongst all of his disciples, he named 12 of them apostles and made them his delegates and his messengers. And he sent them out into the world and they began something. You have good men creating and making good times. But even then, the first century, first couple centuries, if you know your history, I wouldn't call those good times. But nonetheless, good times were being made. We were headed into an age, the church age, where you would see good things happen. Now, you do fast forward to the last 100 years or, say, 300 years, and you think through that. Good men make good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make bad times. And if we would agree that we're living in bad times right now, how do we go from bad times to good times? Good times. Do we sit in just where we're at in our comfort of where we may be? The bad times are over there. They're not right here. I feel okay right here. I'm just going to stay here, and I'm going to wait for the Lord because I sense as if it's coming. You can turn on YouTube and, and end of times, and you will get video teaching, preaching after preaching on top of other preachings and teachings about somebody saying that Jesus is coming. But if I were to be honest with you real quick, and point out to you, Paul said Jesus was coming. Peter said Jesus was coming. Matthew said Jesus was coming. The disciples, you read the New Testament, they speak to the urgency of Jesus coming. And that was 2,000 years ago. So let's not live today thinking he's coming tomorrow, but we should live with an urgency that he is. And wouldn't we be ready? But if he's not, and we're living in bad times, we desire good times. So how do we get back to Good times. Instead of sitting on our hands, that's not what God calls the disciples to do. We're to go and move out and go outward and do things. How do we make bad times, good times? Well, we have to be good men and good women. We have to be good disciples. But is it enough to just be good? No. There are plenty of good people that don't do anything. Now, philosophical argument could be made, or are they really that good that they don't do anything good with their goodness? But James even speaks of that. You say you have faith, but not works. If you, if you, if you say you have faith, you should, we should see that faith manifested by your good works and what you do. True saving faith is a faith that's not alone. It has good works along with it. Matter of fact, Paul even wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and he said that once you come to faith, it's by grace that you're saved through faith, verse 8, but then he says, You are God's workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So there's something that you and I, as disciples, are supposed to do, but Having that knowledge doesn't, shouldn't put us in a place where we just sit and we just wait for that thing to just manifest itself. We're to go and do. And that's how we begin to really make a difference. The reason we came to the place we are, I believe, and I don't believe I'm alone in that belief, is that the church over decades was good, but it didn't go and do good. The church didn't speak back against the culture that was yelling, this is okay. The church just said, eh, do that over there, not right here, because I'm good here. Be bad there, instead of saying, no, that is bad. That is not good, and pressing into those things. So how do we change? We should look to be good men and women, good disciples going out and looking to make a difference and make change. Be the change that we desire to see in our nation, our community first, our nation, but then even the world. So as we've done in the last couple of weeks and as we continue to do in this series, we're going to look at disciples, the disciples and what they did. What can we learn and glean from them and apply to our lives of discipleship today? We looked at Peter, his boldness, his courageousness, his brashness. But we looked at how that boldness was redeemed and what Peter did last week. Brandon shared on Andrew and Andrew's life that, that he wasn't in, insignificant because he wasn't prevalent in, in, in front. He did significant things from the place that God had him. This morning, we're going to start talking of the first of two other brothers. Andrew was the brother of Peter. This morning, we're going to talk about James, the brother of John. want to read the list in in the first week with Peter. We read from Matthew last week. We looked at Luke's account, but this week we want to read from Mark's account and his list and what Mark says regarding these 12. So if you have your Bibles in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, we find Mark's list as he lists these disciples. Very similar to the other two synoptics, he says, And he went up, he being Jesus, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. "...and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles." Same thing that Luke said, Matthew didn't include that. "...whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach." So in each one of these, they're saying the same thing. It's the same list, but there's a different emphasis that they're placing. And Mark places this emphasis here in verse 14 at the end of it. He says that he called them, named them apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. From Mark's gospel on, if you look at the theme of Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel is one of energy. Mark's gospel is always moving forward from story to story, account to account. There's not a whole lot of dialogue in Mark like you see in Matthew or Luke. You see Mark giving accounts of what Jesus and his disciples did. He sent them out to preach. He sent them out to do something He didn't have them just stay at my side and walk with me, watch what I do. One day later, you're gonna do what I do. He says, no, walk with me, watch what I do. Now go do what I do. Come back and tell me what you did. Is the idea, is he sent them out to preach. And he says, this is what they had the authority to do. Remember, the apostles are delegates, they're messengers. They carry out the message of the one that sent them with the authority of the one that sent them. So he says in verse 15, and they have authority to cast out demons specifically. And you see a lot of that throughout Mark's gospel is what the disciples did. They had the authority, not just anybody had the authority. You can read an account in Acts where someone not a Christ follower, not full of the Holy Spirit is trying to do what Christ followers full of the Holy Spirit would do. And these people, they approach this demon-possessed man and they look to cast these demons out and the demons respond back to these people and they say, Paul, I know, or Jesus, I know, Paul, I've heard of, but who are you? And scripture says that the demons then leapt on those people and destroyed them. But here you have disciples. They're sent out with an authority to do that thing. But they're sent out nonetheless. And now here... Verse 16, he appointed the 12, and here's his list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, -er Boanerges. Boanerges, there we go. I practiced that several times and knew I was still going to butcher it. -er Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. And then 18, uh, verse 18, you got Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And then Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So you have the same list, but you have different emphasis in it. And this morning, we're going to talk about James. James, the son of Zebedee. He's mentioned 20 to 25 times in the entire Bible. Two times in Acts. One time in Acts, the first time is in the upper room when they're all praying as before, right before the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon them, and then the second time is at his death, and that's Acts chapter twelve. He's never mentioned in John's Gospel. I don't know. I don't want to spend too much time there on that thought, but his brother John writes a gospel and doesn't mention his brother James. But perhaps John's gospel was the last gospel written he wrote later than anyone else his brother James was the first to be martyred he was the first ever martyr to Jesus Christ perhaps John at the time of his writing writing didn't want to write his brother's name down for the loss that he incurred I don't know history may tell but I think that interesting So James is the older brother of John, son of Zebedee. He's commonly referred to as James the Greater or James the Elder in that he was the older brother to John. Every time his name is listed in Scripture, it's paired with his brother John. He's not to be confused with James, the son of Alphaeus, the other disciple, or James, the half-brother of Jesus. As you read the New Testament, you can get some of those names and people confused depending on the time of your reading and where you're reading at. But there are three prominent Jameses, Jameses, Jameses in the New Testament. But he, along with his brother, we know that they were fishermen. His father was a fisherman. He had likely a very thriving fishing business. He's part of the closest three to Jesus, as we shared last week, in, or the week before when we talked about Peter, that Peter, James, and John often were the three closest to Jesus, and when Jesus would go and do a thing separate than the others these three men were able to go along and asked to go along. Paul includes him in Galatians 2.9 in his list of those that Paul would consider to be a pillar in the early church. But it's also James, along with his brother John, that were brash in and of themselves, but they're the ones that requested to Jesus, like, which, which one of us is going to set it your right? When you come into your kingdom, Jesus, can, can we sit at your right hand? And scripture tells us that the rest of his disciples, they asked this question. They had the boldness to go to Jesus in front of all the other 12. Hey, can we sit on your right hand? And then the rest of the disciples became indignant. Why, who, are, who are you? Well, they're the sons of thunder. See why here in just a second. But you begin to see some of the character in James and John as they would even have that request. And they're even thinking and processing through, which, which one of us is going to be on your right? Can both of us be on your right hand? And that culture, to that statement carried a grand weight. To be at the right hand of someone meant you were there. You were the authority. You were the closest one to it. As it is right now, Jesus himself ascended back to heaven to the Father, and he is right now seated at the right hand of his Father. He's seated in the place of authority, in the place of honor. And these two men would ask can we or can we sit in the place of honor i mean honestly i guess if we were to think about that in our lives and in, in our walk with the lord and our process of discipleship and our relationship if i were to really search my heart yes, yeah, i wouldn't i desire to sit in the place of honor next to my king shouldn't that be our desire in a way yes, yes. but am i going to come and request it is the difference I think oftentimes in in our walk with the Lord, in our excitement with the Lord, we can come to a place where we think, hey, I've done these things. I've been with you. I would love to be in that place of honor. Can I be there? But if we have to ask that question, we've now disqualified ourselves from that place of honor. We should be thinking through how we serve and how we walk alongside, and we will find ourselves honorable without the request but here you see James and his brother believing more of themselves, I think, than what they should have at the time. But they are the ones that Jesus named Bo which is sons of thunder. In Thayer's Greek lexicon, this word there, Bo it seems to denote a fiery and destructive zeal, like that of a thunderstorm is the idea. That's where you get sons of thunder. So you think of thunderstorm and just this, this storm is happening and it's going on. There's lightning and peals of thunder above us as we think about the energy that is placed there for a bolt of lightning to leave the sky and go to the earth. I'm not a physicist. I can't tell you right now. I actually did look it up one time how, how much energy is in a single bolt of lightning typically, but it's a lot. Save it to say it's a lot. But here you have these two men, James, referred to as a son of that thunder. Because he has that sort of energy about him to do a thing. But where is that energy placed? In Luke chapter 9, let's read this, this account here. And I think this is probably where, this is an example of where he and his brother got this name. But in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 and following, Luke tells us that when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up. And he's referring to going to the cross and, and giving his life, ascending to heaven there. But when the time drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So you have Jesus, he's set toward Jerusalem, and he's going to go through Samaria. And Samaria is that place where the Jews walked around, entirely around this area, because they hated the Samaritans, the half-breeds, that much. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers into Samaria in order to make some preparations but they wouldn't receive Jesus because Jesus was going to Jerusalem when they found out Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem we want nothing to do with this guy you're not able to go through here but look at the response of James and John verse 54 and when his disciples James and John saw it they said Lord do you want us to tell fire from fire to come down from heaven and consume them really really I mean, you want to talk about a, a, a leap there? I mean, you 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 have hey, they're just they just don't want you here. They're not going to let you come into this village. You're going to have to go somewhere else. And their thought is, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? I mean, I'm I was about to say I'm not Jesus. <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> But I mean, if I'm standing there and I hear these two men say this, you're you're requesting what? Do you want me to give you the authority and allow you right now to call down fire from heaven? I mean, there's not many times in scripture where that has happened. But yet these two men believe as if Jesus is gonna give them the authority to call down fire from heaven and consume the Samaritans. So, you, you want to talk about some disdain for somebody? I would say right there. But then 55 says, But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now, I, I dare say that, that James and John, probably in their lifetime, never actually saw a fire rain down from heaven and consume something, but they certainly have read it. They know the law, they know their Old Testament. They know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, a wicked city that God rained down fire from heaven on. There's another account also that I think it's interesting to share. It's in 2 Kings uh, chapter 1. And and King uh, Ahaziah, he's a king in the north and he reigned from the city of Samaria. So when, when, the, when, the, when the nation of Israel split in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom, uh, its capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom settled their capital in Samaria. And you have this king, this very foolish king, but he goes up to the top of the palace and he falls through a lattice and he, and he hurts himself in some way and he's on his deathbed. And he's on his deathbed and, and he, he brings some, some people in and he says, hey, send some messengers out and and I want to see if you can find out whether or not I'm going to survive this. But he doesn't send these messengers out to, say, a prophet of the Lord who can actually give an answer. But what he does is he sends these messengers out specifically, go to Belzebub, the god of these pagan people. Go over here and inquire of this god on whether or not I'm going to survive this. So these messengers, they head out. Their king told them to go out. So they go out and they're looking for Beelzebub or Beelzebub. And then the Lord says to Elijah, hey, these foolish people, this foolish king sent these foolish people out. Go down there and you say this to them. So Elijah does what the Lord tells him. Goes down there and says, hey, this is foolish. Your king is foolish. Don't do this. So then these messengers, they go back to the king. And he's like, hey, what did he say? Am I going to live? Am I going to die? Am I going to survive? I was like, well, we didn't quite get there because such and such person, this guy, what'd he look like? Well, he had these things on here. Oh, that's Elijah. Well, what'd he say? Well, he said that, no, you shouldn't be asking anybody else other than the, other than the Lord whether you're gonna live or die. Well, no, I'm going to. So he gets 50 men. He gets, he gets a men that's over 50 of 50s and he sends this captain out and this captain goes to Elijah and says, like, hey, come down right now and effectively we're gonna kill you. King says we're gonna kill you because you stopped him from finding out whether or not he's gonna live or die. And Elijah's response was this. He says, if I am a man of God, let fire rain down from heaven and consume you. So what do you think happened? Elijah, no doubt, was a man of God. So fire at that moment rained down from heaven and consumed these men. So once again, the king finds out about this. He's like, nope, not going to stand for it. Well, I can't stand right now anyway, because I'm about to die. So he sends more people out. More people go to Elijah. Elijah, come down. Elijah's response, if I'm a man of God, let fire rain down from heaven and consume you. Well, all of a sudden, fire rains down from heaven and consumes him. And a third time, this king sends more men. And this this is a captain of 50 of 50s. Do the math on that this is a lot of men this king is sending to die and be consumed because he wants to know whether or not he's going to live or die and he's going to a place that's never going to give him that information but here you have one more time this captain gets to elijah he calls up to elijah not to come down he bows down before him he's like man i am sorry i was told to come here i don't know what to do I don't, want to call, I don't want to harm you. I don't want to hurt you in any way. Would you please don't rain down fire from heaven on top of me? So this is a story, no doubt, you have James and John aware of. And here, just because men wouldn't receive Jesus, they want to call that down upon their heads. But here's the interesting thing about James and John. I say James specifically because he's our focal point. Is that he believed he could do it? He said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Elijah's response to those men that would come against him, he says, If I am a man of God, let this happen. Elijah makes that statement because he knows unequivocally, 100% confident that he is in fact a man of God. What God does then is on God to do. But here you have James and John unequivocally knowing who it is they're following, the authority that he has. Their request is silly, it's foolish, it's murderous nonetheless but they knew the one they were walking with and they knew the one they're walking with had the power to give to them to make the call i mean there's some there's some boldness right there in having that understanding so for you and i if as we're following we're walking with the lord do we know the one we're walking with do we know the authority that he has Are we aware of the authority that we may have with His Spirit living within us to do extraordinary things? But the more important question is, is would we even request some of those things? Now, I don't think any one of us ever needs to come to a point, regardless of what's happening, to because we have God's Holy Spirit and we have that authority living within us and we're walking with Him that we might ask or request, hey, can we call down some fire and brimstone on somebody? If you do that openly in public, it's not going to go well with you. So don't do that. But what if we believed and followed after the Lord with such zeal in our lives? What might be available to us that could be done? What extraordinary thing might we do as disciples in the places in which we live that one might say is extraordinary? So these were, in fact, the sons of thunder. But James was a man of great zeal. He was intense, he was outspoken. Certainly impatient with those that would re- reject Christ. Have you ever been impatient with someone that's rejected Christ? Just the hard headedness. Man, mean, I really wish you would get this. I really wish you would have the understanding that I have. If you had the understanding that I had, things would go well with you. You wouldn't be in the situation you are now. Is that true? Yeah. Not necessarily. But the fact remains is if you knew what I knew Regardless of your situation, you would move through it in an entirely different way what you are now. But we can become impatient with those that reject the goodness of God. You're walking into foolishness and you don't even see it. And better yet, the foolishness of other people, who does it affect? It affects them, yes, but utter foolishness from foolish people, does it just affect foolish people? No. Again, we're living in bad times. And the things that bad people do affect the whole everybody and we can be frustrated and we can get mad with those that have rejected Christ and rejected God and his goodness and have decided to follow their own way. And we can come to a place, Lord, would you just rain down fire from heaven and consume all of them? Why is that our heart's request? Because those people make life difficult for us. Jesus sent James and John into a city to make preparations for Jesus as he was going through it. They rejected Jesus, yes, but now they've got to go somewhere else. Could it be just a matter of inconvenience sometimes for us when we get frustrated with people that have rejected Jesus? If you would just come to church and do what church people do, we'd be good. I wouldn't have to be out here in the mud with you. Regardless of how much we should be in the mud with one another. Amen? Because the church has got it all figured out, right? Sorry for my sarcasm. (laughs) But James, as I said, he was the the first to be martyred. Acts chapter 12 gives us that account in verse 1. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Then when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Peter was kept in prison, but for earnest prayer for him, was made to God by the church, and we know from that account that Peter is saved. But here you have James, he's arrested along with Peter, but James ends up being the one beheaded. Peter ends up getting away, I say, getting away, but he was released, he was saved. But this is, this, is, this is a man who followed Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was an apostle. He followed with great zeal. He loved his master. He did what his master requested. He didn't get arrested because he was just sitting somewhere being good. He got arrested because he was doing good. Most likely, he got arrested because of his zeal. He's living in a culture and in a time to be a Christian means your life, literally, right there. First guy to making it be made an example of outside of Jesus Christ. is for his belief, he's arrested for the zeal, for his willingness to speak into a culture that needed Jesus, that was rejecting Jesus, but then he gave his life for it. And there's a lie that goes on in the church nowadays that, that you shouldn't do that. For those that follow Christ, bad things aren't going to happen to you. No, we live in bad times. Bad people do bad things, and they affect good people. But good people do bad things as well. But no one is immune from that, certainly not God's people. God's people, we are going to be under a great persecution. There's an oppression that will happen against us when we speak truth in dark times, in bad times, where truth becomes irrelevant or truth moves or shapes or morphs from one thing to the next as the culture determines it to be. When we stand on the absolute truth of God and we proclaim that with zeal in the marketplace, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be oppression. We're going to receive pushback. This should be the normal occurrence. But for a long time, this nation lived in good times where that's not a normal occurrence. And that is a blessing. But we can look back and we can lament the times in which our parents lived or the times in which our grandparents lived And we can say, man, those are good times. Can we get back to those good times? That'd be great, but those good times, what did they make? They made soft men. The reason we're living here is because there was a softness that exists. There was a church that lacked a zeal, that didn't go out, that didn't share the truth of the matter in a culture that was yelling otherwise. So what do we learn here? What do we take away from James? Number one is we should grow in zeal for God and others. To have zeal is to have an excitement and energy about doing a thing. And if we understand the thing in which we're supposed to do as disciples, it's to go out and to make more disciples. I shared this with the students here on Wednesday night. The purpose of the church, the church exists to make disciples. But then those disciples go out and make more disciples. Those disciples make more than that. And it's an ongoing perpetual place of discipleship. But we should have a zeal to do that, a zeal for God and for others. Paul says this in Romans 12 as he speaks about things that we would do within the body. He says, for by grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. See, what did James and John do? A little bit more highly than they ought to think. Hey, can we sit at your right hand? But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. He says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. He says, let us use them. As part of the body, as part of the church, as Christ's followers, indwelt by his spirit, we've been given gifts to be used for the building up of the body. Paul says later in chapter 14 to the Corinthians. He says, we've been given gifts. Let us use those gifts. Let us use those gifts with an excitement, with a zeal, understanding what the purpose is, is to build the church up. The way we love God and we love others, it, it becomes a display. It's something that you see outward. It's not merely something we do with words. Think of the relationships with your end, your marriage relationship. If we're just always saying to our spouse, hey, I, I love you, but never showing that love in some way, then it's just empty words, and it puts a strain on the relationship. We're meant to always be doing, but do with some excitement. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift, he says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we should love God, certainly. But it's because of that love that you find James wanting to call down his his God. Whom he loved was rejected and he responded. He responded in the flesh, but he responded out of his love. Not fully understanding, though. But that love for God, it's a display of our love for Christ, our love for his word, our love for his people. And we should be deploying that through the church and our serving here, but are also serving outside these walls as we look to serve our community in various ways. with our faith, with our generosity, with our zeal. You know, Last week, Brandon pointed out this conversation that he had with someone sharing a need. And with great zeal, his response to them is, we will fund it. We didn't have it to fund it. And it was a statement fully on faith, but it was a statement that was made in excitement with energy, saying, we will do that that you need. Right now, I don't know how, but I have faith that we will figure it out. And then last week, he shared to the, to the body what we're going to do. In two weeks, on Super Bowl Sunday, we're going to raise in one day $30,000, which is my belief that for our body here, I believe on faith it's, it's going to be easy. I believe on faith we're going to surpass that goal but it's something we've committed to do, to not just be good in the place that we meet on a Sunday morning, but to be good out there in the place that we exist every other day. Why would we not take the goodness that we learn here for an hour and then go out into our world, into our community, into our workplace, into our schools and be good there? So we're gonna seek to do good things. As you can go here to, uh, you can snap a picture of the QR code, but you can go to stonepointchurch.com forward slash super Sunday giving and on that webpage, you can see how we're going to give. You can see the things that we have faithfully planned to do. Now, if we show up in two weeks and our body doesn't respond and the goals that we set and the things that we say we want to give to and we don't make it, well, I'm going to take it on faith that it's not going to happen. Amen. The alternative grieves me deeply, but I don't believe that would happen. I've seen this body do wonderful, good things. The fact that this campus exists, you realize that, Edgewood? Edgewood? There was a point in time in the life of Stone Point Church, this campus did not exist. But then all of a sudden on faith with great zeal, there was a belief that a church plant in the sixth year, I believe, would say, you know what, We we can replicate this right down the road in a place that needs it. No, you can't. Yeah, we can. And we did it. And then for years, every single Sunday, many of you know, we set up church, a church building, a church service right across the road. Every Sunday morning, we laid tarps down, we put chairs out, we set up a stage, we set up curtains, we set up lights, we set up speakers every single Sunday. And we worshiped and we taught from God's Word. We did exactly what we do here. We did it there and it was set up and tore down every single Sunday. That does not happen if not for a people that aren't doing something with their goodness. If there's a people just sitting on their hands, Edgewood Campus would not be here. But the fact that it is, what are we going to do now with what God built? Sit on our hands? Or are we going to look to what he wants Edgewood to plant from here? Are we to go eastward from here? North, south? We're not going to go back west. Will's Point's got West. Trust what the Lord's doing that way. What way do we want to go? But if we're not willing to go back across the road during the week or wherever our workplace may be and look to do good things with what God has gave us and make disciples there, we'll end up looking inward. But I would rather be in a place where my heart says, Lord, do you want me to call down fire? from heaven to consume them. I would rather be there than spinning our wheels here, feeling as if we're good in one place instead of good in over a hundred places. So we should look to grow in zeal for God and for others. The second thing is we should be careful of zeal without proper knowledge. Now this is important when we think of zeal and excitement and energy to go and do a thing. And we're going to go out into a world that is certainly going to push back against the truth that we would proclaim. In our culture right now, and I wouldn't say just American culture, Western culture. You see the same thing in Europe. You see the same thing in in all these countries that are developed in some way is you see a redefinition of what is good. You see a redefinition of what morality is. So if we're going to go out into the world with some zeal, we need to have a proper knowledge of that zeal and where it needs to be placed. Again, James and John, they had zeal, but not a proper knowledge of what Jesus was doing. Therefore, consume all these people. And Jesus is like, no, I came to die for these people. I'm not going to consume them. I'm here to save them. And if our heart for this world that is broken is Lord, just consume them. Just come, would you come? Wipe them all out. Let's have the great battle and let's get on to eternity. No, Jesus came to save them and he wants you and I to do it. But I will confess my heart sometimes is to sit on my hands and show you how to do it. And I dare sometimes to go out and do it myself because I can be good in my comfort but we should have a proper knowledge of what the mission is and what we're to do and what it should look like, how we do it. Romans 10, verse 1 through 3, Paul gives this this exhortation. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's speaking of the Jews specifically, for them is that they may be saved. So Jesus had that belief. Paul had that belief. My desire is they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's speaking to the Jewish people, his own people, the people that he used to side with. Paul certainly had knowledge, but it wasn't proper knowledge. You can read, I'm not going to read it to you, but in Philippians chapter 3, Paul lays out his resume, who he was. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He, was, he knew the law forward and backward. He had knowledge all over the place, but he didn't have a proper knowledge. And he had such a zeal that he would have Christ or Christians killed. Paul's mission, he believed he was serving God while killing Christians because he didn't have a proper knowledge. He was calling down fire from heaven to consume every Christian because he believed they were going against God. He didn't have a proper knowledge. He says himself in Philippians 3, verse 6, he says, as to zeal, he says that I was a persecutor of the church. So what you and I should be doing with our zeal is we should look to have a proper knowledge and where that needs to be placed. But one of the great confusions in our culture and even Western culture is is one would be the prosperity gospel is if you come to faith in Christ, you put your faith in Christ, then you're going to have good things. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have prosperity. That's a lie. That's not proper knowledge of the gospel. After all, James was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Every apostle save John was martyred. And then there have been countless martyrs throughout church history. No. Just because you put your faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean you're going to have good things. But Our definition of good and his is entirely different. So you have entire movements that are built on this lie just to get people in the door. People want people in chairs. Churches want people in chairs for the sake of just have people in chairs. If there's more people in chairs, hey, guess what? There's maybe more giving. If there's more giving, we can go doing some more things. But you're filling the church with a bunch of people without a proper knowledge. Their giving is futile if they don't understand how and what they're really giving to. And you have just a misuse of God's word, a misunderstanding of God's word, and it can lead people into error. There are many movements that are feelings based. Man, this worship, it just feels so good. I love the way it makes me feel. Why do you go to church? Because it feels so good. I love to sing the Psalms, the band is great but you're filling seats with people that don't have proper knowledge of what it is. But let me ask you this. I love worship, and I love how we can be drawn into worship and how the Lord uses that worship. It was a worship song on a night on a back road that the Lord used to readjust my life back to Him. I understand what worship is. But let me ask you this. If you come here on a Sunday morning or you attend a worship concert or something like that, And you just have this wonderful, great, euphoric worship experience. If the only place you have that experience is at church on a Sunday, I would question that experience on a Sunday. If you've never felt that feeling in the Holy Spirit move in your heart as you're driving down the road listening to Christian radio, if you've never had that worship experience there, I would question having it in the one place you always have it. You get what I mean? We should have great zeal, but a proper knowledge of it. Now, the last thing, third thing, is we should now guard against knowledge that lacks zeal. This is where I believe the church has failed the most. As we can come to know and understand, be students of the word, but never do anything with it. Never be excited, have any energy to do anything with it. But this is the church age that we're living in. And the Lord has a purpose for you and I as His disciples. And the purpose is to seek and save the lost. That is what this church, Stone Point Church, this local manifestation of God's body was founded on. Was that there was a people in this county that needed Christ. And we sought to share Christ with them. But we are His ambassadors. We're also his triage doctors. The church is meant to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. So we, may we not come to a place where we just have a knowledge, we have great learning. As best that I can on this campus, as I teach from God's word, As I want to teach you sound wisdom, sound understanding as I see it, as the Lord has taught me that from his word, I want to give it to you. We are to preach the word, in season and out of season, and we will continue to do that. Brandon will continue to seek to do that, to pour into this body and to teach, but the purpose is to equip that we would be going out. May we not just come and receive and do nothing with it. Me included. Knowledge without zeal makes us judgmental. It makes us self-righteous. It will make us cynical. And we'll be looking to call down fire from heaven to consume them all instead of Having compassion and desiring to save them all. We'll wrap up with this, Second Peter verse three. Nine and ten. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. If all the work that's done on this earth is going to be exposed, what type of work in our lives do we want exposed is the question. But good men make good times. Good times make soft men. Soft men make bad times. If we're living in bad times and de- desire good times, let's be good men and women and good faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? And pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. And I thank you for our brother James. I thank you for his example, Lord. We don't have, we don't have letters written from James. that tell us how he lived and there's not things we can glean from his ministry other than he had an excitement and a zeal and a boldness to carry forth your truth. And we know, Lord, it got him killed. But as Paul later pointed out in his ministry, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. If we believe that truth, what's the worst that this world can do for us? Take our life. Again, Paul would say anyone that would look to gain their life must lose it. If, if, If we're okay with that, and I'm thankful, Lord, we don't live in a place where our life is on the line when we proclaim your truth. If there's any time, a safer time to share and proclaim your truth in this world and in our culture, it's right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a great zeal, Lord and a desire and excitement to share what we have in you. But Lord, in order to do that, we must have it. We must have a proper understanding and knowledge of it, Lord. Would you settle our hearts and minds on that? And continue to teach us to go out, Lord, with wisdom and discernment, with where and how, but to trust you in those moments, Lord, to do what only you can do, for others. We can't save people, but we can share the good news. And when people come to faith in you, Lord, then we can begin to disciple. Lord, help us to do that well. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.